see ya. Nothing personal worth of the day. I can't even do it as well as Michael K can do it. But I spent a lot of years, even when I was president of the Marlins, beating the Yankees. I would say under my breath when Miguel Cabrera would hit a home run, see ya. Because that is the most famous call. I am honored for a Samson sit-down to have Michael K with us. Michael, how are you? I'm great, David. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It has been a minute because I've been out of the game for a few years. But I saw the book that you just released, and I wanted to get you on a sit-down. The book is called Center Stage by Michael K. My most fascinating interviews from A-Rod, who I've got some experience with, as my listeners know, to Jay-Z. Get it A to Z. If you don't have the book, get it. It's available on Amazon, of course. Probably even are books still in bookstores, Michael? Yeah, there's still Barnes and Nobles and there's still local bookstores for sure. Yeah. So you can get it anywhere. It is a a quick and interesting read from a man who has had a career that anyone would be envious of. Most people have a dream and they have a hard time getting there. Michael has gotten there and then some. Michael, welcome to Nothing Personal. Thanks for having me, David. Absolutely. So are you on a book tour right now? A Zoom, a virtual book tour. So it's kind of different for sure, but uh, it's been fun. I mean, you get a chance to talk to different people around the country. I like it so far. It's it's quite different, right? Pre-COVID, you would have been schlepping on a plane, right? From, from strip mall to strip mall, making appearances, signing books. How are you doing with signing books? Because I got a copy of the book and I thought that when you order a book from Amazon, it's signed by you, but it turns out it wasn't. No, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, we, I did a virtual book signing uh, at this place, Bookends, which is a, you know, a famous local bookstore in New Jersey. And uh, so they had like 250 people on a Zoom Q&A and all of those people got books. And so they give you they send book plates to your house. It's like stickers. And then you sign like 250 of them and they put them in the book. So those people got like autograph book. So everybody that has bought the book kind enough to buy the book, you know, they, they want it signed and they go, well, how do I get it signed? And then, you know, although the world is certainly opening up, there's still restrictions. So the best thing I could tell him, David, I said, after a Yankee home game, meet me outside gate two, because if you send it to the stadium, it's probably going to get lost in the mail. If you send it to my radio station, ESPN, I'll get it like a year from now. So the best way is to wait outside gate too. I mean, I want to sign every book that people want me to sign, but if, if it's a situation where they're sending it somewhere, they'll never get it back. It's just the way it works. They'll never get it back. So that's the one bad thing about not being able to do signings because people want you to sign the book, but you just can't. Have you, uh, I know you've been in clubhouses your whole life and the mail room in the clubhouse is always a fascinating place for me because every player, I don't know if our listeners, I've never talked about this on nothing personal. All the players get their own mailbox. And you can tell sort of the popularity of the players because some players need multiple mailboxes because they get so much. But people send players the funniest things to sign. And some players I've seen in the clubhouse take the time. They open a few, but it's impossible to open all of them. And if you, with this book, there's no way that you could catch up. I mean, you could spend an entire day every day with the number of people who'd want to hear from you because you've pretty much spoken to everyone. What happened here, Michael? How did you come up with the idea to decide to do a book? Why would you do that now? Well, a, a couple of years ago, David, I had I had a vocal cord surgery in the middle of the season and I couldn't speak for six weeks. So they had a film, you know, Bob Costas did games on the S yes Network. Uh, my backup, Ryan Rucco, did a lot of games, John Flaherty. So 
it was it was tough because you don't know if you're going to get your voice back and you start to think about your whole future. Uh, so I just sat around the house and couldn't talk to my kids, couldn't talk to my wife. So I, I read a lot. And one of the books that I read was Howard Stern's book, uh, Howard Stern Comes Again, which was he took snippets out of all of his interviews that he's done on radio and made comments about, you know, the person and how they were. And I started to think, you know what, we've done like 240 center stage interviews. We can do that. And I wouldn't take snippets. I'd actually run, you know, the interview. But then I would tell the story of what the person was like behind the scenes, you know, because everybody's different when they're on camera. I mean, they're in the best behavior behind on the camera. But when you're not on camera and you and you're dealing with people that are not going to help you or, you know, can't do anything for you. I think that's the real value that you could see the value of a man or woman. So, you know, I intro these 35 that we picked out out of the 240 and tell the backstory and how these people were in real life and how they treated people and how far they've come since that interview. So it was just it was really an inspiration uh, that I got from the Howard Stern book. And since I couldn't speak, I said, well, I might have to become a writer if I never speak again. So that's how the book started. First of all, how are you feeling? You sound great. 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 I mean, this doctor was amazing, but it was only supposed to be three weeks. Right. So I, the guy, the guy was in Mass General in Boston, Doctors I tell, who actually saved Joe Buck's career. And um, so three weeks go by, I go back, and they put this tube down your nose, a camera, and then he takes it out and shakes his head. He goes, "It's not healed." He goes, "I don't know why." I said, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, don't talk for another three weeks." So That's then, the worst then, thing you want to hear from your doctor, oh, right? I don't oh, know why. <laughs> I don't know why. And uh, then he actually figured out why I had had uh, my back acted up maybe from stress. And I took Meloxicam, which helps me with my back. And he said, that's it. He said, that's a blood thinner. He said, so it didn't heal. It's still the blood's still there. He said, live with the back pain, come back in three weeks. And three weeks later, it was fine. Well, I know there's millions of people who are thankful that you got your voice back. So I want to talk about the book writing process because you were, you say you were forced into it, but many people who would be in your position would not have the ability to actually focus and sit down and call all the interviews together because you've spoken to so many people. How did you tell me, walk me through the process because I'm interested that you went from 240 to 35. Did you do it according to your favorite interviews or what you thought your reading audience would think would be their favorite interviews? It's a, it's a great question. It was hard to, to whittle it down from 240. I mean, I would have liked to put all 240 in, but then, you know, this is the book. It would have been like, it would have been like <laughs> the encyclopedia. Uh, dictionary. Yeah. An encyclopedia Britannica. I was hesitant to say that because people don't use encyclopedias anymore, but um, so I, I guess I whittled it down to about 50 and then the publisher and the editor, they started to play around. Well, what's going to resonate with the most people, uh, there, there are people that I wanted to be in there that they said, I don't know if that really sells. And so I, you know, I had an interview with Stephen A. Smith that I loved and they said, no, nah, I don't know if that has broad appeal. And Terry Crews, um, the actor who like talked about being sexually assaulted in Hollywood and he was weeping on the stage. I thought that was powerful. And I said, no. So we all came to an agreement of, of these 35 and it, it was really my choices, but with the, the editor and the publishers thinking what would sell the best as well. So who was number 36? I think, you know what, to me, it was probably Terry Crews. Cause I think, you know, my pitch about Terry Crews, I thought that that could really help people as well. 
you know, the things that he said. So because he's not, his whole interview is not in there, in the opening to the book where I set up the whole book, I do mention the interview and what he spoke about because I wanted his message to be out there as well. He'd probably be 36. I've got a great idea for you because this book is is selling great. It's going to keep selling great. You're going to get to do a part deux. So you could do the next 35 and then you'd be up to 70. You, if you, if you play it right, you could have like five books based on your interviews and you're keep and you're going to keep going. I like how you think that could be the next thing, you know, instead of doing a paperback, do another hardcover with the next 35. Exactly. Cause people want that people. What I find with nothing personal because of the life that we have, how lucky we are to be inside. And I, I, I reference Hamilton a lot, but to be inside the room where it happens, people want stories, but they want honest stories. They don't want to hear from gas bags in the media who have never done anything or seen anything or experienced anything who are just giving hot takes for the purpose of getting clicks or, or, or viewers, but you've been in the room. You are the room, and that is something that I, I think you should keep doing. But when you're giving an interview, how, what is your definition of a difficult interview? Let me ask that. A guy, that. a guy or a gal that doesn't come to play. You know, when you're interviewed, you have to know the rules of engagement. You've got to give expansive answers. You know, you've got to you know, be poignant and somewhat funny at times. Um, of all the interviews that we ever did, David, the worst one was probably the actor Dennis Quaid. Uh, he was going through some tough times in his life. I think he and Meg Ryan had just broken up like a week before. Uh, he came to the studio, did not realize for some reason, I don't know why his publicist didn't tell him, didn't realize that it was an hour interview. So he was angry about that. So he sits down on stage and for the first, it's an eight segment show, an hour. He's giving yes and no answers to everything. Yes, no, you know, flatline. So after the second commercial, I lean over to him. I said, you know, the show's an hour. Whether you give yes or no answers or not, I've got thousands of questions. <laughs> You're the one who's going to look bad. It's not me. So you decide how you want to move forward. But again, I'll keep asking and you'll keep saying yes and no. And he, I think he was startled that somebody would talk to him like that. Uh, and then he got better. But that was, you know, I think all, all, I, I'm proud of all of the interviews, but that one was not great. And that was a, he was promoting the movie, The Rookie, which you remember about Jim Morris, the teacher who ended up making the big leagues. And what saved it is that the last two segments of the show, Jim Morris was there and he came out and obviously his story was so inspirational. And the thing that gets me, David, that really makes me sad is I've seen Dennis Quaid on late night talk shows with Kimmel and Fallon. He's funny. He's engaging. But that day he was miserable. And that was a bad interview. So when you're not ready to play and you don't know the rules of engagement, that's a bad interview. Did you get him to talk about Randy at all? Just very little. It didn't seem like he wanted to. And then, you know, I, I grew up in the South Bronx, so I have a little bit of pushback in me. And like, you know, the movie was a Disney movie, so they had all of their people there. And I said, we've got to ask him about, you know, Meg Ryan. And my producer said, the people from Disney said, if you ask anything about Meg Ryan, they'll pull him off the stage. And I said, well, then let's ask and keep the cameras rolling as he's pulled off the stage. But there's so much politics, David, where like, if you do that, then that group of publishers will never get you another interview. So you got to play the game, too. So I was convinced not to ask him about that, which might have been a better interview. And, you know, he might have given a great answer. Who knows? But, you know, publicists are there to protect you. So our word of the day today was Sia, which is your home run call. And many, many, I would say the majority of people who I come across, I'm a New Yorker. I went to Horace Mann, by the way, a competitor of your high school, I believe. 
I actually got accepted to Horace Mann and couldn't get a scholarship and couldn't afford to go. And I went to Bronx Science. So Bronx High School of Science is great. And uh, always very, actually, people at Bronx High School of Science were always smarter, I thought, than the people <laughs> at Horace Mann. I really did I, think I, that. I, I love Bronx Science, David, but I had to work so, because to me, Bronx Science, and I'm sure Horace Mann, is like playing in the big leagues. So the worst big leaguer, the worst player in the big leagues was the best player in his town. By far. He was the guy that everybody wanted to be. And when you go to Bronx Science, you were the smartest kid in your junior high. And all of a sudden, you're a 180 hitter in Bronx Science. <laughs> it was brutal. I worked so hard to get a 92 average. It was brutal. So hard. Yeah, but look where it got you. So, yeah, I, but I, I went to a reunion of Bronx Science, you know, from my 78 graduating class. And there's doctors and lawyers and scientists there. And I'm a broadcaster. So did I really make it? I, I'm not changing history, I guess. I love the self-deprecation, but it's not going to fly with me. And the reason it's not going to fly is that broadcaster, you're at the top of your profession. There are broadcasters who want to be what broadcasters, they never make it. They never have the ability to make the calls you've made, to see the things you've seen, to talk to the people who, with whom you've spoken. And I, I got to talk about the Yankees because you are synonymous with the Yankees with all, whether you were writing in New York, you did some work with the Knicks, all the stuff you've done, you could write a million books. But for me, the biggest part of your legacy is your attachment to the Yankees, your professional attachment and your personal attachment. And I want to touch on that a little bit because I tried to rule over 18 years without emotion. And but your job is to convey emotion. Do you find that your personal view of things gets in the way of your ability to properly communicate when there are issues going on in the Bronx? Well, you know what? It's funny. I, I, I do the radio show and then I do the game. And there, you know, people go, well, you're different on the radio show than you are on the game. Well, it's a different job. So on the radio show, I'm there to opine and tell you what I think and, you know, criticize. The game's not so much that vehicle. I mean, the opinions and the, the uh, criticism are more for the analyst than the play-by-play -play guy. I'm kind of like the point guard on, on a game. Uh, you know, I grew up in the, you know, 10 minutes from Yankee stadium. And all I ever wanted to be since I was nine years old was the Yankee announcer. And my parents, you know, God bless them. They, they were encouraging, but they always kept saying, well, have a fallback. Cause you know, it's hard to do. And I didn't realize how hard it was to do. I mean, how many people want to be the Yankee announcer? So I, 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 I think emotion's good in my role. And, and in the 30 years I've announced Yankee games, David, they've been so good for so long that they give you so many great moments, they almost write themselves. So you're just like kind of putting the frame around the picture. And that's the way I look, you know, at, at the role that I have. But it's something you've talked about, Michael, because you do answer to more than one person by having as many jobs as you have. And you've discussed it recently, including on this book tour, that one of the reasons that on your radio show, you cannot do some of the things that your competitors can do is the fact you wear different hats. So you have to have that in your mind at all times that you are a Yankee announcer, you are you work for ESPN, you have a radio show, you have all of these things going on. How do you how do you juggle it because you have to have a governor, don't you? Yeah, it, it, you do. Uh, it's a tightrope that you walk. I think the most difficult thing is that on the radio show, I really do criticize the team, especially the way they've been playing lately. I mean, you've got to be honest because it's a show that's not just Yankee centric. It's all sports. 
Uh, and I think that's the delicate balance. And the one thing that I will always give credit to the Yankee organization and the Steinbrenner family about, as critical as you get, you never get called on the carpet. And in other, in other towns, the announcers root for the team and they're homers. They don't ever tell us to, you know, root for the team. I mean, I don't think they want you to get personal and we never get personal anyway. But if a guy makes a bad play, they want you to say he makes a bad play. Because if you're going to tell them the truth on bad things, they'd be more apt to believe you on the good things. Now, in terms of the hats that I wear, you know, so I'm, I'm in a, a ratings war now with FAN and Craig Carton. So Craig has done morning drive and he's, I mean, you'd look at him maybe as a shock jock and he could say nasty things about me and he could really, you know, he could go lower than I can go. And not because the Yankees or ESPN say no, but the Yankees and ESPN, they're kind of like Tiffany brands. They can't be associated with somebody that's making fart jokes on the radio. So that's the, the balance that I have to have. I don't worry about that on the TV. I mean, that's the Yes Network. It's owned by the Yankees anyway. And I wouldn't be making those sorts of lines there. But in talk radio where you feel comfortable and you're talking extemporaneously for four and a half hours, it's a balancing act because there's just so far you could go. You could go up to the line. But if you get too crass, I don't think that works with the Yankee brand. And I don't think that works with the Disney brand of ESPN. But over 40 years of your career, I think you'd agree the damn line keeps moving. It does. It does move. But I, I think the line of what's acceptable for brands like the Yankees and Disney, I think that's consistent. I think the line moves elsewhere. You know what what's acceptable, what's too low. But I think that Disney and the Yankees, very conservative brands. I don't mean that politically, but just conservative brands that you, you just have to know who you represent. And I appreciate that. I mean, I'm honored to, that they trusted me to be one of the faces of really important brands. And I don't, I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to besmirch that brand, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So what is bothering you most about this year's Yankee team? It just seems so one dimensional, David. Uh, you know, they, 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 they got put together to hit home runs. And then when they don't hit home runs, they can't win. And the first two and a half months of the season, home runs are hard to come by. I mean, with spin rate and the fact that, you know, one reliever after the next comes out of the bullpen throwing 98 miles an hour, most relievers are right-handed, most of them, and they come out throwing hard and they can, they can neutralize a Stanton and they can neutralize a, to, a, to an extent to judge. The whole lineup is righty. There's no balance at all. And I remember I asked Brian that a couple of years ago. He said, well, if you gave me a choice of having a great right-handed player or a lesser left-handed player, I'm going to go with the right-handed player, which makes sense. But Yankee, the Yankees with the short porch and right have always been built with big left-handed sluggers. I mean, the, the recent dynasty, you know, you got Tino, you've got O'Neill, you know, you brought in Giambi, Matsui. Those were guys that took advantage of the place where they played. This year, um, they're neutralized by hard-throwing right-handed relievers. They're not very athletic, and they're running the bases terribly, which is really surprising. And what bothers me is when the manager and the coaches get blamed for that. I mean, these are like 10-year veterans that are trying to go to third base when a ball hit in front of them and they're down 7 nothing. That's inexcusable to me. I still think they can win. Uh, and the reason I say that is they don't have to do anything extraordinary to win. They just have to play to the back of their baseball card. Not have career years. Just be what they've been before. 
and except for Aaron Judge, nobody has been what they've been before. Sanchez is starting to come on, and Duhar starting to come on. We've seen that when Stanton's in the lineup and can play, you know, he can put up numbers, but the you know the the ordeal is keeping him in the lineup. So it it's one of those situations where when they were the pitching was great, they weren't scoring runs. Lately, they're scoring runs and the pitching's coming down to earth. So maybe with the advent of the rule of no sticky stuff, the hitters will get better. But then you have to wonder how it's going to affect the pitching. So it's going to be an interesting, you know, final 90 games. So when we put together a team, we had a similar philosophy that we're looking for the best player. We tried to get players to that would be good at Marlins Park, gap hitters. We were playing checkers while our teams were playing chess because everyone else was getting home run hitters. And we were trying to play to the big ballpark that we had just built. And so when Brian Cashman sits down and he puts a team together, he is not as focused as you'd think on the right field porch because over time that has proven and analytics has really solidified this, that playing to your park, the park, remember park factor, and that was a very hip thing for a while. That really is not in the minds of general managers. What's in Brian Cashman's mind right now has to be what to do with this team because remember, he's got the Steinbrenner family saying we're not going to go over the luxury tax. Because that is the Yankees will not get help in the form of money this year, I don't believe. But he's then got to figure out playing to the back of the baseball card. You said something that I think our audience really should understand better. The back of the basket of the baseball card for some of the players, they are playing to it. Stanton has injuries. He doesn't play full seasons. Gary Sanchez had what became an outlier season, right? When he was so good, his baseball card. He sort of is playing to his baseball card, which is not as impactful. So the Yankees, as, as, as they thought it would be, remember Gary Sanchez was going to be the guy. Right. And now, and now he's just, there's enough years have passed. The hardest thing to do when you're running a team is to figure out when the back of the baseball card has actually changed. And that's where I think the Yankees are suffering this year is that they're, they're holding on to the hope of getting back to the baseball card, but they may be looking at the wrong card. I hear what you're saying, and you know, just to, to, to double down on the left-handed hitter factor, not so much to take um, advantage of the short porch. I understand what you're saying, but their lineup's not balanced. There's no, there's no um, potholes for a manager to worry about. There's so many lanes that you could bring in a righty. Like That's why they struggle with Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay has these hard-throwing right-handed relievers like Pete Fairbanks that they pick out of nowhere – and, you know, he can come in and face seven righties in a row. And the only lefties they have are Brett Gardner, who's 37, although he's playing well lately. Rugnet Odor, who had such a bad time in Texas that they're paying his salary for the next two years. Um, you know, a guy like Tyler Wade, they just don't have the lefties in their lineup. So I agree. And the, the one thing I get on the radio side, David, Yankee fans call in and, and they, they say Hal Steinbrenner is cheap if he won't go over the threshold. And I said, first of all, Hal Steinbrenner and his family have spent over two and a half billion dollars since 2010, and they'll have a World Series to show for it. Hal Steinbrenner sits there and lives in Tampa and watches the Tampa Bay Rays make the World Series of the $60 million payroll. I'm sorry, 205 million should be enough to make a team that could win a World Series. So it's not about money and taxes. It's about, as you know, draft selection, dropping down in the draft international you lose a lot of stuff when you you are a repeat offender seems like the dodgers don't mind doing that they're at 260 
But Steinbrenner wants to reset that luxury tax for the new collective bargaining agreement. And I, I would tell you this, if Brian comes to Hal and said, you know, in order to improve, we have to go to 215. If I'm Hal, I'd say no. And I don't think that Brian could be angry. I'd say no. 205 is a lot. I think Brian knows that he can't go to Hal with that. Right. They've worked together for so long and Brian's been there so long. He's a free agent, by the way, a very important free agent at the end of this year. Brian Cashman I think the Yankees, if they don't make the playoffs, I think that would probably be it. I don't know that they would bring back either Aaron, who is one of my favorite players I ever had with the Marlins. He's engaging. He's funny. He's smart. And what worried me recently about him is his post-game interviews. And I'm wondering whether you've noticed this. He doesn't seem – it's like the weight of the world is on him. And the Yankees can do that to people, but he just looks miserable. And if you know Aaron Boone personally, he's the opposite of that. He's not a miserable man. He's not a grumpy old man. And he just seems bad. Are you noticing that as well? Well, the the, the last loss in Philadelphia when he snapped at a writer who asked him, is your team getting used to losing? That's not Aaron. Aaron's one of my favorite people. You know, I worked with him uh, as, as a broadcaster for ESPN. We did, you know, national playoff games. He's just a great guy. And I was so glad when he got the job. But, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, the Yankees can do that to you. I used to look at Joe Girardi, who I saw age in front of me, you know, just age exponentially, you know, putting all this pressure on him. And then, then uh, Aaron as well. And I just shake my head and I go, it was so different when George Steinbrenner, that was pressure. I mean, how lets you do your job? You don't have a, a fear of getting fired every single day. I mean, go talk to Billy Martin, talk to Buck Showalter. That was real pressure. I mean, Joe Torrey handled, handled it better than anybody because he would actually engage George Steinbrenner, when things were going well, he called George and go, well, what do you think? And I think that that kind of diffused the situation. But Joe Girardi and, and Aaron Boone have no idea what pressure is about because the old days, it was completely different. I mean, you remember, I mean, it was there was a lot of pressure managing the Yankees. You could get fired up for 16 games, even if you were Yogi Berra. I, I ran a team acting that way where our managers were worried about getting fired and ended up firing most of them. I had so many conversations with Joe Torre. What a difference, because I know Joe Torre very well. And Joe Girardi was, we gave Joe, Joe Girardi his first managerial job. And uh, he was very different as the years passed, as he got older. But you bring up an interesting thing. The, the way that Joe Torre managed the Yankees, people are forgetting because George has not been around for a bit. But what Joe Torre did when he was brought in, it was a very unpopular choice. He was a failure of a manager before he became the Hall of Fame Yankees manager. He was what we call in the game, and I know you know this word, Joe Torre was a retread mm -hmm. that when he was brought in. And he had this, and, I, and I've heard this directly from Joe, he had this sort of view, listen, if this works out, great. If this doesn't work out, great. Happy to have the opportunity. And I know that I'm about to get fired every single day. And he just wore that like a warm blanket. People like Joe Girardi, in my opinion, I'm curious what yours, they don't like that. They don't like feeling that they could be in danger or that someone doesn't let them do what they want to do because they're wound differently. Joe Torre was the perfect Yankee manager. And I thought Aaron Boone would be too, but Joe Torre never changed over his years, even though he had great success. But I feel like Aaron Boone may be changing and that may not be good. It's tough to be a manager now, David. It's a completely different animal. It's more of a middle management position. You're not making the decisions completely. You've got to be in unison and in lockstep with the front office and the numbers. And I think that's frustrating too. 
because Aaron Boone comes from a baseball family. So if you told Aaron Boone, go out and manage and manage by your gut, I think he'd do a great job. And I'm not saying Aaron's being forced into this because he also believes in the numbers. And I just think overall, I think that's why Joe Torre couldn't manage it. I know he's 80 years old, but Joe Torre wouldn't allow, you know, somebody to make out his lineup or tell him who to play or who not to play. And I think that's what was happening toward the end of his run. Uh, and I think that, that that ended up being the end of Joe Girardi as well because he was pushing back as well. And I, I go all the way back to Buck Showalter. You know, Buck loved information, David, loved it. He craved it. He wanted as much information as you could give him. So he would be, in my mind, the perfect analytic manager because he would take those numbers, but he would want to employ those numbers. That's not the way the job is anymore. And I think it gets frustrating to manage. It really does. I think they feel like almost boxed in. And your job as a manager now, I don't know if you would agree with me, your job is to stand there at the podium after the game and explain why the numbers told you to do this and make it you know, reasonable to, to fans and, and in their own way, the players. You've got to almost defend stuff that didn't come out of your mind but came out of a computer. That's a different skill set now. And I think that's one of the reasons that Aaron got hired, too, because he's so good as a communicator. And I just hope he's not getting fried by all this. And, and the players are different, too, now, though. I think that one of the things that has changed, uh, not just the money uh, that players are making, but sort of the way the players have grown up playing baseball and the way they've been treated in terms of obviously getting everything they've wanted whenever they've wanted it, getting more money earlier without accomplishing anything at the big league level, way more so than than when Aaron Boone was playing or or when Joe Torre was playing, when you're grinding and grinding. So one of the things that we'd look for in a manager is the ability to communicate up and communicate down. And that's when you perfectly said uh, a, a middle manager. But now Aaron Boone has an even worse job. He's got to try to manage and meet the media and deal with this sticky substance issue where Garrett Cole put himself right in the middle with a recent interview that I found to be, it, it provided such a great content for nothing personal. It was so bad that it made me feel as though he was not properly prepared when he was asked whether he uses spider tack or a sticky substance. And he said, I don't know how to answer that. And I can picture, I was thinking about Aaron Boone and Brian Cashman the whole time while watching that interview. And Garrett Cole pitches tonight. And uh, I, I think it's probably his most important start of the year. And certainly for the Yankees playing the Blue Jays, where do you see sort of their pitching staff? Because, you know, Kluber's hurt. Severino now is a month later, right? Uh, because of his Could groin. Be. Yeah. So so Garrett Cole has to be the ace, maybe the number two starter as well. So I'm just curious where, where, where you see the sticky substance and what your role is as a broadcaster in explaining to fans what the hell is going on. You know, I did the game last night with David Cohn, who I think, by the way, would make an unbelievable manager. I don't think anybody would ever give him that job. Uh, he'd also probably have to take a pay cut from what he makes as a broadcaster. But um, we did a deep dive on it. And, you know, I, here, here's my problem with what's happening now, David. You are making some of your biggest stars because Garrett Cole is a legitimate star. And the way he struggled in that interview to me was stark because he's so good with the media. I mean, he's great. He likes to talk. He likes to expand. He likes to explain pitching. He loves it. Uh, I just think that he was caught between what he was told to say, what he wanted to say, what his emotions said, just blurted out. And he got caught there and said, I don't know how to answer it. had that awkward pause. 
Um, I think that every start he makes now, David, is going to be scrutinized. I think every start that Trevor Bauer makes is going to be scrutinized. Uh, I think that the start they had against Minnesota, how he struck out Josh Donaldson, who kind of threw Garrett under the bus and made Garrett the face of this whole thing. Um, that was a that was an important start. Tonight's more important because the Yankees have to start winning games against American League East teams. So they won last night. But I agree. Uh, and David Cohn said this on the air last night. The injury to Kluber was gigantic because I think it took a lot of them emotionally out of it. It took it knocked the team back a loop because he had just pitched that beautiful no hitter. And then the next start, he, his shoulder is hurt. It was a good gamble by the Yankees. It was a it was a big money gamble, too. And the reason they they had to pay as much as they did, there were a lot of teams that liked Corey Kluber. I think the Severino thing hurts them as well, because to me, the Severino injury, he was going to be the Yankees big acquisition without increasing payroll. You were going to get a number two starter for nothing, just off the IL. Well, now, best case scenario, he's coming back at the end of August, beginning of September. Don't know if Kluber's coming back. And Tyone has not pitched well. Davey Garcia got hit hard in the minors yesterday. Clark Schmidt hasn't really thrown yet. Um, Michael King has looked okay. He hasn't looked great. So get, there's a lot riding on Garrett Cole. And I, I think, you know, I, I always hedge this, David, where – you know, people go, well, are these players worth the money? Well, you know, in comparison to policemen and firemen and teachers, yeah, in a real normal world, those people would make the most money. But I'm sorry, ball players make a lot of money because they make the owners a lot of money. And that's what the market bears. And I looked at Garrett Cole last year, beginning of this year. And if he stays healthy over the nine years, which I don't know if he will, he's going to be worth every penny. He's a great representative for the Yankees, fierce competitor legitimate number one, which is hard to come by. I look at him the same way, what he could do for the Yankees that CC Sabathia did for them. It's going to be interesting to see how spin rate affects him because in Minnesota, his spin rate wasn't down so much and there's no way he was using anything there. You know, every camera's on you, everybody's watching. So I think he could still be a great pitcher even without spider tech. It's going to be fun to watch. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I want to get back to your book, which is called Center Stage by Michael Kay, my most fascinating interviews from A-Rod to Jay-Z. Please go get it because you're going to find it fascinating, the people who Michael has been able to speak to and what he gets them to say. But I want to talk about one of the interviews because you included one of my favorite people of all time. And MASH is my favorite show. And that ages me. And I'm sorry, but I admit it. I'm 53 and MASH is the greatest show ever. Tell me that Alan Alda, because I've had the luck of meeting with him and spending time with him uh, because through a friend of he was a friend of my grandmother's, actually. What was your experience like with Alan? It's like being around royalty, if that makes sense. It does to me. (laughs) Delightful guy. And he's so smart. And as I said at the start, I, I, I do judge a lot of these people on how they how they treat people how they treat people that, that, that can't help them. Uh, he was so nice to everybody. He was so nice to the stage people, the cameramen, the people behind the scenes, the caterers, 
He brought along his wife. He didn't have an entourage. He's Alan Alda. He was the best. I mean, what a sweet, sweet guy. And, you know, we both have something in common. We went to Fordham. So that connected us as well. So I'm going to end. We have to talk about A-Rod because you put him in the title and that couldn't have been a mistake, even though alphabetically you could say that you did A to Z and that was mm -hmm. a little sort of gig. But A-Rod is a, is a name that uh, not just will draw interest in, in searches and it's an important thing to have in your title. So brilliant. Well done there. Is he the greatest redemption story in the history of baseball in your mind? I think he's one of the greatest uh, redemption stories in the history of the world. It, it's I, I, I've actually joked him. His name is Lazarus. I mean, he rose from the dead. Just think about it. Nobody could have been lower at a lower point than Alex Rodriguez. I mean, he was suing the Yankees and suing Major League Baseball. He served a, a year suspension for cheating for the second time. I mean, this is stuff that you can't and then denied, denied, denied when he knew that he, he did it. And I, I, I told him that the people that handled him, it should be a course that's taught in colleges. I, I don't know how he did it. Not only has he you know, risen to this, you know, he's almost like a beloved figure now. He's crossed over. He's on Shark Tank. Uh, you know, he dated Jennifer Lopez and was like, you know, he was in Hollywood. He was at the Oscars. Uh, he's the face of baseball on ESPN and Fox. He's got the highest profile jobs in the world. It is the most unbelievable story of redemption I've ever seen in my life. And when, when he was going through what he was going through, he was obviously with the Yankees. I thought he was done. I don't, I don't think we'd ever hear from him again. We heard from him again. We'll continue to hear from him. The guy is at best resilient. You'd have to admit that. I would admit that. I would say he's resilient. He's stubborn. He's eager. When he was trying to buy the Marlins, he would meet with me and he'd want to know who, which owners he should be worried about voting for his bid versus not. He's very organized, very focused, very deliberate, which sometimes can come off as robotic. It sometimes can come off as disingenuous. Was he dating Jennifer Lopez because there was a professional reason to do it, right? So with A-Rod, there's always multiple layers, but I don't use, say that pejoratively at all because that is what you do if you want to be successful. You have to be operating at different levels, but he continues to do it. I wonder what his next step is because you know he still wants to get into ownership and I'm not fine for a minute that he's moving to Minnesota. Did he tell you he was? No, I don't think he's going to move there. I mean, I can't <laughs> see him in Minneapolis. Although Minneapolis is a great town, but I just I love Minnesota. I, I love Minnesota. I'm I a Wisconsin guy, Michael, so I love I really, I, I always enjoy going there. I love the people. They're great and I love that ballpark, although there's part of me that wants the twins to make the world series one year and have it be like minus 20 degrees in a, an open air stadium that I'll never understand, but uh, got I, fire I, pits, Michael, they have fire pits. Yeah, that'll work. Um, <laughs> I, I think Alex wants to buy the Timberwolves. I don't think he's going to live there, but I think I, I would agree with you. I think he was really disappointed. He didn't get the Mets, but I told him at the time, you're going up against one of the richest people in the world. I don't think you're going to get this. So Steve Cohen outbid him. And, uh, but you know, there, there'll be other opportunities, but, I think this, it's got to be the certain sort of thing. I mean, I could see him buying the Marlins. He loves South Florida. I could see him buying the Mets because it's a high-profile team. I don't know if I could see him buying the Cincinnati Reds or something like that, but who knows? He's a, he's a smart businessman, and I'm sure if he thinks he can make money, he'll do it. Did you ever try to interfere or solve or settle the Derek Jeter A-Rod situation? No, I stayed out of stay it. away? That was, first of all, I, I don't know how well you know Derek, when Derek's dug in, Derek's dug in. You're not changing his mind. And 
you know, there's certain things you just, you, you just leave alone. And I have a nice relationship with Derek and yeah, that that's, I think that was someplace that you don't go to. I sold the Marlins to Derek and then he fired me. So I'd say I know him quite well and uh, <laughs> say that, uh, that, that if you talk to him about it, the only smart thing I ever did in my life was having A-Rod compete with Derek to buy the Marlins because it just drove the price up because they don't like each other so much that it is personal. When things get personal, it gets in the way of business and it's and to, the, to the benefit of other people. The amazing thing is that they were truly very close at one point. I mean, when he was with the Mariners and Derek obviously was at the Yankees, I mean, They'd stay at each other's place when the teams played in the other city, but something went awry at some point. But don't you find that to be true in life as you've gone through life that in order to have something so negative, it has to come from a place of being so positive or the other way when something is so negative and then it rehabilitates, it's like what happened with A-Rod. So that sort of redemption story or that sort of fall from grace, the longer you fall or the greater you climb makes the story that much more interesting, doesn't it? That's a good way to put it. And uh, they, they were, again, uh, you could see how close they were. And now it's, uh, there's certainly a, a fissure there that I don't know that if it will ever be, uh, ever be fused. The size of the Grand Canyon. Can we talk about Sia since we started yeah. the show with this? Uh, so I've lucky enough to have spoken to a lot of broadcasters and they have said to me, the majority have said to me that their catchphrase started not on purpose that there was just something that happened in a game and then they said it and it was early on in the career. How did Sia start? I got the Yankee radio gig after being a writer for the post in the news. I covered the Yankees for five years. So I got the gig uh, in the winter of 91, right after the world series. So I knew I'd be working with John Sterling and you know, that winter I'm thinking, do I have to have a home run call? You know, you don't want it to sound artificial. And at the time I was dating a young lady and whenever I would drop her off at her house, she'd open the door to the car. She'd jump out and she'd go, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. Which is a, a line, I believe, from New Jack City where they throw a guy off a bridge. So that started to resonate and bang around in my mind. And I said, that, that wouldn't be a bad home run call. I'll just take out wouldn't want to be ya. And the first time a home run got hit, I tried it out and I, I thought it sounded okay. And then fans started to repeat it back, which means that it's starting to resonate. So it started with this young lady who used to end dates with C and wouldn't want to be it. That's unbelievable. <laughs> How many times do you have to say your home run call? Did you practice it before you used it on the air? No, no, I didn't. And, and there are different, you know, there's some home, there's some home runs that you can't call that way. You know, they get out so quickly or, or things like that. And then you are, you know, fans argue with you. They don't want you to use Sia for a home run for a visiting player. And I'm not that sort of announcer, although, you know, obviously I like when the Yankees win, I'm not going to get down when the other team hits a home run. So I do use it all the time, but this, there's like back track wall looking up, see ya. Then there's, there it goes, see ya, but there's some home runs that it doesn't lead to, but the Yankees have certainly hit so many home runs in some of the seasons. You feel like, wow, you never stop saying see ya. Do you even have time to say see ya on some of Stanton's home runs? Like, do you have to talk super quickly? Those are the ones you can't say see ya <laughs> because they get out so quickly. I mean, he hits these blistering line drives. You blink and they're out. So you just go, that's gone. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't lend itself to see it. So help our audience here as we close. I want to understand what is the best advice you could give because so many people want to get into sports writing. They want to get into broadcasting. 
tell me what what is the number one when you're asked and i know you're asked all the time what is the number one piece of advice you can give the listeners about doing the love of your life which is what you do now well i think this applies and and, and you being a businessman would know you you might agree as well i think this applies to anything and i tell kids this all the time that ask me i, I think that most people are somewhat equal in talent level i mean there's an occasional outlier like a bob costas uh, who's just so different than everybody else or Vince Scully, but we're all working with the same sorts of tools. And I just think that the ones that work the hardest that aren't punching a clock per se, and never ever like look at the time, but they just got to get the work in. I think those are the ones that get noticed when positions opened up like that. That's how I was when, you know, when I started in the newspaper business coming out of college, my first job was like, getting people lunch and filing photos and doing, you know, box scores. But, you know, the shift was an eight hour shift, but then I would sit there for the next four hours after my shift was over and I would write on my own time and I would submit stories to the editors. So they knew that I was a go getter, that I wasn't worried about, you know, getting home per se. If you work harder than everybody else, if there's four people up for a job, they're going to remember the guy that works the hardest. They're going to be remember the guy that will do anything to get the job done. You'll get promoted. Even if you all have equal talent, the one that they know is, is reliable and is going to put in the extra oomph, I think they're going to get the, the, the longest look. I really, truly believe that. The busiest people get the most assignments because they actually get stuff done. Yep, absolutely. And I, I've been a firm believer of that. And I think it's a, a product of my upbringing. You know, we, we grew up with not a lot of money and my parents stressed education and stress being, you know, treating people with respect and working hard. You know, if you get a job, you give that person their money's worth in terms of the job. And, you know, they always pushed us so that we could have a better life than them. And that was a big deal. You know, just uh, that's, that's two things I live by. I, I treat people the way I would want them to treat me. I never try to big time anybody. Not that I would. I don't think I'm bigger than anybody. I never talk down to anybody. I treat a CEO the same way as I treat the people I get you know, makes the lunch at Yankee Stadium. I mean, everybody's a human being. And then, you know, I never worry about working too hard. And a, a key, I wouldn't recommend this for anybody, David. You know, I got married at 50. So for the first, you know, 30 years after college, I made decisions selfishly, all about me, all about me advancing. I didn't have to worry about kids at home or, you know, the wife is not going to see you or my marriage could be in trouble. No, no, it was all about me. And I don't think I could have done that if I had a responsibility of a family. Well, whatever you've done, you've done it right. The name of the book, if you could show it one more time, but the name of the book, Center Stage by Michael Kay. My most fascinating interviews from A-Rod to Jay-Z. You got to get this book. It's on Amazon. It's at booksellers. There's actual bookstores where you can get it, but it's also online where you can buy it and it gets delivered like immediately. And Michael's just had an opportunity to meet a lot of people. And now you get to be in that room where it happened. Michael, I appreciate your time. Good luck with the book. Good luck with continue to be well and healthy. And I guess I have to end by just saying, see ya. <laughs> Thank you, David, so much. This was fun. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, 
for the ones who get it done.